This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week with the Zoomer Squad and a conversation about what should be done to address the healthcare crisis in Canada. It was prompted by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's healthcare funding summit this past Tuesday with provincial premiers and territorial leaders. In the end, the Prime Minister offered a $17 billion top-up to the Canada health transfer payments, along with an additional $25 billion for individual deals with the provinces and territories. The day before the Ottawa meeting, while filling in for Libby, I was joined by Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Policy Officer for CARP, David Kravitt, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. I asked Peter first, what do we want to see come out of this meeting? Over the last few years, the uh, the the, the cracks in the system have become so evident. ER closures and uh, lack of doctors and nursing shortages and just the list goes on and on and on. And it's not like um, like you can throw money at it and these problems will go away. These, these are systemic problems that mm-hmm. need to, you need to you need to think about them. How to how can we how can we figure out you know how to deliver care that's not only you know, um, affordable, but it's also efficient and fair. And um, it addresses all these issues that the health, that have cropped up in the healthcare system in the last few years. So um, it's not just a question of writing checks to the provinces and the provinces promising to provide data back. It's, it's a question of um, let's, let's think this through, you know, we have an opportunity here to repair something good and let's do it right. And um so that, that'll be interesting to see whether that uh, kind of spirit is in place on uh, Tuesday when they meet. David, what are you expecting? What would you like to see? Well, I think there's a couple of, uh, there's a little subtext here that I'm finding a little bit of encouragement from. First of all, Duclos said in an interview on, I think, CBC, that they've got to start doing things differently. Um, so it wasn't just a matter of finding a, a monetary formula. And... Uh, uh, in the interview, he acknowledged agreeing with, I think it's, uh, I think it's New Brunswick, though you could tell me Higgs. I think he's the New Brunswick guy who said that he's seeing a different climate now in these discussions, um, because of public opinion. So they are aware now, they claim to be aware that people are just losing patience with the whole thing and they want radical changes. And at the same time, I see in the paper today a new poll out um, that 60% of Canadians are in favor of private delivery of publicly uh, funded health care, 60% also in favor of private health care for those that can pay, which is a massive change in attitude. I'm not necessarily advocating that one way or the other yet, but uh, everybody wants new methods and new um, systems and new approaches um, not just more money. And uh, so they're, they may be meeting officially on the topic of more money, but I think there's a subtext here that says, how do we actually change this system so right. they can operate properly? 
Right. Um, and Bill, your thoughts from CARP members, what people are saying about this summit? Yeah, well, they're agreeing with both uh, Peter and, and uh, David. It's not uh, all about money. There are some uh, huge cracks in the system that have to be filled before anything else can be delivered. And this is where they've got to cooperate and take action uh, rather than just uh, talking about money. The basic one is uh, is staffing at all levels, uh, right from uh, basic care up to uh, uh, doctors and and specialists, we we have to uh, have the provinces work uh, together. Uh, Ontario has uh, uh, proven uh, some of the lead so far by saying they're going to allow doctors from ever, anywhere in Canada to practice in Ontario. The other provinces have to do the same thing. We have to take down those provincial uh, barriers. So there there uh, there has to be cooperation among the provinces before any money from. Ottawa is really going to make any uh, difference because as soon as Ottawa puts uh, uh, puts demands on the money and criteria to the money, then the uh, provinces object because they are the ones who are ultimately responsible for delivering health care. So uh, I'm I'm expecting that uh, tomorrow we may hear a lot about uh, more dollars and and even real allocation of dollars. What I'm afraid we won't hear is how we're going to be uh, how they're going to be spent in a way that's mo- going to be most effective in improving an already very sick system. My conversation the day before the healthcare funding summit with Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer for CARP, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It was all the talk last weekend. The Chinese surveillance balloon that passed over the U.S. and apparently spent time in Canadian airspace the week before. According to U.S. President Joe Biden, it was ultimately shot down by the U.S. on Saturday when it was over the Atlantic Ocean and not over land. China's foreign ministry initially said the balloon was for civilian, meteorological, and other scientific purposes, and that it regrets the airship strayed into U.S. airspace. And then once it was shot down, a statement from China's foreign ministry was critical of the U.S. action, suggesting there would be repercussions. Joining me on Monday to discuss this international incident, Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China and Charles Burton, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and expert on Canada-China relations. Well, I think it was enormously significant in the sense that it went so badly wrong for China. I, You know, this this dirigible um, crossed from West Coast to East Coast, stopping off along the way at a series of critical military installations. I think that China did not expect it to become public. Um, I think that they maybe wanted to use it as a bargaining chip with um, uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who was scheduled to be in China actually right now. He had to cancel because of the um, enormous outcry at the violation of American sovereignty. And the, the upshot is that, you know, it's it's moved us closer and closer to, to confrontation between China and the U.S. 
which you know could lead to to a, an outbreak of military hostilities over the South China Sea or over Taiwan. It's just sort of drip, 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 drip. Mm-hmm. I think the Chinese felt that they were in a position where they could do this sort of outrageous thing, you know, sending a surveillance device across the United States that people walking their dogs on the ground could look up and see, look, the Chinese have got their surveillance device looking at me kind of thing. And I think they've grossly miscalculated the strength of their position and the weakness and indecisiveness of the U.S., and unfortunately, because it led to Mr. Blinken canceling his trip to China, the opportunity to come up with some sort of resolution or some mechanisms to ratchet down tensions and avoid misunderstandings that could lead to military disaster have been um, removed. So, you know, all in all, I think China really messed up on this one. And and I, I, I really feel very sorry that it's leading to more and more tensions between China and the U.S., which, of course, will impact on Canada as well. Uh, Chuck, what are your thoughts on the significance of this incident? Well, uh, the first thing I thought about was uh, is a psychological provocation. Mm-hmm. Basically, um, there's nothing you cannot do with satellites and human intelligence on the ground um, that a balloon cannot uh, can do so. So if it's a, it is indeed a spy um, sort of uh, device, spy device. I think uh, China didn't expect any results from it. It's just a matter of publication. And the, the secondary benefit of it is, from a Chinese point of view, is that it created a little bit of a havoc in the U.S. government. You know, it created a lot of uh, attention between the U.S. Congress and and Biden. And, and, and as a result, this is a kind of a um, long-range plan of uh, China and, also, of course, Russia, too, to, to, to weaken the uh, United States and its allies and tend to sort of claim uh, sort of superpower status. What moves, Charles, should the U.S. and Canada make now with regards to relations with China? Well, I think that, you know, I, I, I absolutely agree with everything that Chuck has said. And I think the fact that these balloons have been able to come into our territory and just uh, permitted to gather whatever information they can and, and then be directed back to China is uh, indicative that China is perceiving us as weak. So I think that we have no choice but to uh, engage in some return retaliatory action to make it clear to China that this is unacceptable and they have to stop uh, infringing on our sovereignty in such a a blatant and audacious way. And uh, I think that this will probably be reflected in more uh, military activity to enforce the the, uh, uh, international waters of the South China Sea and and other maybe some military sanctions against uh, whoever we identify as being responsible for uh, sending that balloon um, into North America. You know, I don't think that this is going to end uh, today. I think once the information comes out next week, uh, we'll see the U.S. announcing some some response. Charles Burton, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and expert on Canada-China relations, and Chuck Kwan of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, humanitarian efforts ramp up for Turkey and Syria. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is the most deadly seismic event in the world in more than 10 years. This past Monday, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck Turkey and Syria, resulting in colossal death and damage. Within a day, Turkey's president declared a state of emergency in 10 of his country's cities, with some 25,000 emergency personnel at work on the ground, a number which quickly grew. In Syria, it has been much more difficult to assess the damage and provide assistance because of the civil war. While in for Libya on Tuesday, I was joined by two experts on delivering humanitarian aid to provide understanding of what's going on and what kind of help is on the way. Jason Nickerson is with Doctors Without Borders, and Raul Singh is executive director of Global Medic. It's uh, significant and catastrophic. You know, you've got 3,000 buildings down on the Turkish side of the border. You've probably got 10 million people that live in that area. You know, it's 10, 11 major cities that are affected. And on the Syrian side of the border, you've got uh, an additional 4 million folks that have fled the war and fighting and sought refuge in that area on top of its normal population. And they've got really nowhere to go. So it, it's, it's pretty catastrophic right now. Jason, the challenges in getting aid and help, particularly to Syria, are challenging, to say the least. Uh, You've had people working in the region for the past 12 years in northern Syria, supporting health facilities there. How do you transition to assisting people during the earthquake or after the earthquake? Yeah, so as you say, we've been working uh, in northwest Syria for for many years. Um, So we were actually supporting five hospitals in northwest Syria, including uh, one with the burn units uh, and and then 12 primary health care centers, plus conducting mobile health clinics and and providing water and sanitation services um, to some of the internally displaced people camps. So, you know, we're we're an emergency medical and humanitarian organization. Um, So when the earthquake struck, uh, those projects were able to pivot very, very quickly um, and to provide immediate support to uh, 23 health facilities across Idlib and Aleppo governorates. Um, and so, as, as I say, we were already working there. And so we had teams and we had equipment that were pre-positioned um, to provide medical care. Um, and so they were able to very immediately um, provide assistance. We treated about 200 wounded uh, people in the first hours uh, of, of the emergency. And then we've been um, dispatching our, our ambulances to try and establish a referral system, but then also to make additional uh, equipment and supply donations to other hospitals. Uh, Jason, what are you hearing back from your people in that part of Syria? Well, look, this is obviously a, a devastating event. Uh, the number of, of uh, dead and injured is, is rising. Um, health facilities are, are clearly overwhelmed and, and impacted, um, and the needs are very high. Um, so at the moment, you know, the, the initial priority in sort of the first 72 hours of, of an emergency like this is, is going to be focused on, on search and rescue. Um, but in parallel, you know, we also need to be establishing very quickly a referral system because there are many people who are wounded and they need um, access to urgent uh, medical care. But it, again, in, in parallel, we also have to be focusing on the health needs that existed prior to this emergency. And, and this has been something that we've seen 
um, in previous emergencies tends to be neglected. But, um, you know, I think it goes without saying that um, while we do have uh, an increase in acute needs, people continue to need access to routine health services as well. Um, so we're very focused on on certainly scaling up to, to meet those acute needs for trauma and, and wound care and so on. Um, but we're also focusing on, on ensuring continued access uh, to routine health services, um, but also recognizing that we now have thousands of people um, who have lost their homes. Um, we're, we're hearing from our teams. There are many people who are out on the streets. Um, it's been snowing for the past couple of days, so um, we really need to be moving quickly and, and focusing on things like shelter and access to clean wow. water, yeah. um, food, and, and, and other basic necessities of life. And Raul, for people who want to donate uh, to help Global Medic with efforts in Syria and Turkey, um, how do we go about doing that? Yeah, folks can go online to our website, globalmedic.ca, make a donation. We'll, we'll ensure you get value for your money and we get the right aid to the right folks. Uh, I, I do suggest that folks really research who they give to and just make sure that the aid's getting there. And Jason, same with uh, Doctors Without Borders? Absolutely. People can uh, go onto our website, doctorswithoutborders.ca, um, and are welcome to make a donation um, that, as I say, allows us to, to scale up and respond to emergencies in, in Syria and Turkey and, and uh, in more than 70 countries around the world. Jason Nickerson is with Doctors Without Borders, and Raul Singh is Executive Director of Global Medic. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Even if you're not planning to retire for a few years or more, you've likely done at least some financial planning toward a time when you might not have an income as you age. But how much do you need to have saved to retire? A new BMO survey finds Canadians believe they need $1.7 million. That's an increase of 20% from the 2020 version of the survey and is set to reflect people's concerns about inflation and the cost of living. The poll also found fewer than half of those surveyed, 44%, are confident they will have enough money to retire as planned. That's a 10% decrease from 2020. I talked about these findings with personal finance expert Barry Choi. When I first started working, I'm not going to date myself. It was a couple decades ago. And the magic number was $1 million. And even that seemed like it was impossible. Now it's $1.7, according to this survey, which I find very interesting because just last year, uh, it was $1.4. So I feel like there's a lot of emotions being attached here, especially with inflation going up. Maybe it's the right number. Maybe it's not. But I'll tell this. I, I'm sure there are people listening right now, and they're freaking out about that number. It's different for every single person. You know, it's called personal finance for a reason. Well, and I want to ask you how you determine your quote-unquote number. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, though, this $1.7 million, is this all money, or is it a combination of RSPs, cash, TFSA, and, say, equity in your home? I think it's $1.7 million, I think, as a general listener, should be like total assets. I'm assuming that's what people are talking about. So it includes real estate. Uh, of course, it can be a bit tricky. So when you think about it, a lot of boomers these days, if they own their home, you know, 1.7 million could be nothing because they might have it in their home. Uh, of course, that might require a lifestyle choice. You can't necessarily just sell sell your bathroom, sell your bedroom. You would need to sell your entire house if you want to access that equity. And then you would need a place to rent after the fact. Right. Um, but also at the same time, you know, 1.7 million or whatever number you have in your head, 
is a bit deceiving because there are some government programs that can help you, such as the Canadian Pension Plan and Old Age Security. So it's not like you need to save everything. There are going to be some assistance, but you should be saving, of course. So what is the best way of deciding as an individual how much you should have in your savings um, before you don't have an income? (laughs) I would recommend anyone, whether you're be 40, 50, 60, to seek out the services of a fee-only financial advisor. And the reason I say this is they'll literally crunch the numbers for you. You know, you're paying them a set fee. They have no bias. They're not trying to sell you anything. Look at your numbers. They look at your income, your assets. They talk to you about what your lifestyle is going to be like when you retire. What kind of lifestyle do you want? And based on what you tell them what you already have, they can run the numbers for you to see if you're doing good shape. And to give you a perfect example, you know, a couple of years ago, I decided to quit my job. Uh, and before I did that, I wasn't sure because I was very worried about my retirement. It's like, if I leave my full-time job, my pension, my income, will I be able to make enough money as a freelancer? So when I hired a fee-only fee financial advisor, he ran the numbers and he told me, he's like, listen, Barry, this is all you actually need to make. And it was literally half of what I had expected. And I'm not even kidding you. Two weeks later, I, I resigned. I quit my job and I quickly realized I'm okay. So, so a lot of people are saving. They've got this number, but they don't realize that they may not actually need that money. And until you get, to, until you get the advice from someone professional, you'll never know. How much, uh, and you've seen the industry change, as you mentioned, over a couple of decades, how much is longevity playing into retirement planning and funding? More and more people are living to be into their 90s, some <laughs> to be 100. <laughs> you know, it is a huge thing. There's no doubt. You, you know, when, when CPP was uh, started in the payouts, I would imagine that they weren't expecting people to live as long. You know, obviously, we want everyone to have a long healthy life, uh, but our savings may not last as long. So I think people do need to save more. But at the same time, I think people need to change their investment strategy and why they need to speak to a financial advisor. You know, back in the day, you know, they were saying, hey, when you hit 65, you got to make sure it's all in cash. So, so there's no risk. But, you know, you hit 65 now, you might have two or three decades left to live. So you're going to still invest is what I'm saying. So you still have time for your money to grow. But you need to be smart about it, and that's why you need to work with a professional or at least have an understanding of your finances to make sure you have enough money to last you. So when somebody comes to see you and wants to talk about how much income they need for retirement, what are the questions that you ask them, Barry? Well, I'm not a financial advisor, but, you know, as general advice, I yeah. tell them, like, think about what kind of lifestyle do you want? Are you thinking about moving somewhere else? Do you want to stay in your home? Are you going to downsize? Do you plan on traveling more? And once you've thought about that, then you can really go to a professional and get get their opinion. Personal finance expert, Barry Choi. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. CETA in Mississauga phoned in on the day before the healthcare funding summit in Ottawa. Our healthcare system was once envy of the world. Our healthcare system and long-term care are still operating in a dinosaur age. We need to update, keep up with new technology and new ideas. 
we want to see transparency, how the money is being spent. We don't want more people in the sunshine list unless we, we don't need more supervisors. We need workers. Pat in Toronto also called about health care spending. One of the worst problems is we've got this political system where you're a member of a political party. As we all know, in Ontario, all the decisions are made in Doug Ford's office. And in the federal government, all the decisions are made in uh, Justin's office. It is difficult to do this with politicians trying to understand how to run these. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Cindy in Toronto, who phoned about unusually high natural gas bills. In August, my elderly mother, who's 86, received um, an Enbridge bill, and it was $450. Wow. So I was shocked. I called Enbridge, and the lady that I spoke with at customer service, she seemed to be very frustrated and kept on telling me that prices have increased. This is, you know, to be expected. I said, listen, lady, I said, this is August. This is like October. My mother didn't, she didn't even have the heat on, never mind this, this bill. So... She said that, you know, um, it, uh, she would look into us. No, we need to look into it now. So I, I, we talked about it, and finally I said to her, could there be a, a problem with the meter? I want the meter changed. This is impossible. So she said, that she asked me to read the meter, and yes, they had estimated uh, uh, something that was like 4720, and they estimated like 4750, you know, and that came out to a $450 bill. In, the, in October. <laughs> that does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.